Thank you guys. Good seeing you this morning. And uh, I want us to open our Bibles as we continue in this Advent season to the book of Philippians chapter 4 verses 4 through 9. Uh, will serve as our focal text uh, this morning. And as you're opening your Bibles there, let me thank you for being here this morning, especially if you're a guest worshiping with us, whether in person or online. We are grateful for you being a part of this worship experience. And as we shared with you, uh, we do hope that you would take the time as uh, God's Spirit works and stirs in our hearts as you would anticipate and maybe for some that means that he is calling you to become a follower of Christ for others uh, to become a part of a church family so we do hope that you will text FL respond to that number that is provided for you 833-571-3475 so that we can follow up with you uh, immediately this morning I want to uh, speak as we come to Philippians 4 I want to speak on the imperatives of of peace uh, I think that my family has uh, grown weary and becomes more aggravated with each passing year. Whenever they ask me for um, you know, my Christmas list, what is it I want for Christmas, I, I always respond with uh, that, uh, that angelic host and their words of all I really want is peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I think it's hilarious when I say that. Uh, they don't think it's near as funny as, as I do. In fact, my 86-year-old mother beat me to the punch uh, this year. She had began asking me at Thanksgiving what I wanted for Christmas. And I said, I don't know, let me think about it. Of course, I never get back to her. And uh, she's been, so for the past several weeks, been asking me that. So I get this text from her Monday. And I've been saying the past three times, all I want is peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And uh, so I get this text on Monday from my mom, waiting. Dot, dot, dot. Need Christmas lists. Now. And we all want peace on earth and goodwill towards men. So go for something else. Well, what else could we possibly want? Well, the truth is, when it comes to the themes of Advent, when we talk about hope, peace, love, uh, love and joy, uh, I think we can make an argument that what we most want is peace but that is the very thing that we most lack as Paul writes about peace and as he expresses his wish and his desire for the Philippian church that they might have peace the word that he uses is not a word that that means the absence of war between nations he does mean an absence of war within within the human spirit the peace of which Paul speaks and writes is a peace determined uh, not by whatever circumstances might arise in our life, but it is a peace acquired and achieved as a result of the one who has risen up from the grave to be the resurrected Prince of Peace. Two times in this chapter, Paul talks about the peace that he wishes, that he desires for those Philippian believers. And what I want us to look at this morning in this section of Scripture is in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 4 is that the, the peace that he speaks of, that Paul writes of, it comes at the very end, uh, both times, it comes at the end of, of two sections. Uh, the first section is verses 4 through 7 where Paul talks about his personal piety and also our corporate 
piety, when we speak of piety in the Christian faith and our Christian piety, it's talking about your devotion to God. It's really about, about your inner life and how that inner life is expressed. And so verses 4 through 7 talk about the piety of, he, of his practice, the devotion of his practice, his pietistic practice, and, and how that looks and how that is necessary, the, the imperatives that he offers. These are necessary in your, in your life of piety if peace is to be the, be the result. But then the second set of imperatives, and we know imperatives, they, they, they are commands, things that must be embrace things that must be practiced and so the second list of imperatives that he gives in verses 8 through 9 deal with ethics ethics simply stated has to do with how you think how you think results in how you act and so in the acquiring of peace this peace that passes all comprehension that Paul will speak of both of these things go hand in hand and that's what I want us to look at this morning I want, I want us to look at the intricate relationship that exists between our devotional life, our inner life, our piety, our expression of our faith from the inner life, and then to talk about peace in terms of ethics, how we think as believers, and how that thinking is played out in our behavior. Let's begin with verses 4 through 7 where Paul talks about this relationship and kinship uh, between peace and piety. Now, as I've already said, peace has to do with our reverence and our devotion towards God. Our piety is something that, uh, your piety and your expression of piety and devotion is something that emerges from your inner life as a result of your relationship with Christ. How that relationship with Christ expresses itself and how it is seen, how it, how it is observed by others. And what Paul is going to do now through verses 4 through 7, he's going to offer three, four really other imperatives. And what I want you to notice about these imperatives is that they are in, it's not obvious in the reading of the text, uh, some of them are, but it's in the second person plural. In verses 4 through 7, the imperatives are in the second person plural. That means that this is, the pious, that this is the kind of expression, the kind of piety, the kind of devotion and reverence that you are to express in your life, not just individually, but corporately. This is the piety, this is the expression of our devotion and reverence that we are to express together, congregational, corporately, as the body of Christ. Now notice, let's just read through these in their, their entirety and then we'll come back to them. The first imperative, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit, there's the second, let your gentle spirit be known to all people and then, and then the interjection here of this indicative statement. Indicative statements are declarative statements of fact based upon your beliefs. And so he interjects this indicative statement here that, that the Lord is near. And how appropriate for us when we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Now, 
Paul is emphasizing that, the nearness of God, the Lord is near. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul here is borrowing from his Old Testament knowledge. Paul's not really breaking any new ground here on these, these virtues that are to be expressed in our, in our devotion and reverence to God. In fact, there's a very familiar threefold expression of Jewish piety uh, that is found here. If you were to read the Psalter, if you're familiar with the Psalms, you'll find this redundancy of some of these, these very phrases over and over. For instance, in Psalm 64.10, in 97.12, it says, The righteous rejoice in the Lord. So there's this threefold Jewish piety that we're going to see throughout even the Psalter, this idea of rejoicing and giving thanks and praying. So it's something that that has emerged from the Jewish understanding of their Jewish piety and now has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and now is to continue in the life of the church. The righteous rejoice in the Lord as they come before him, Psalm 95, 2, in 104, as they come before him in thanksgiving to pray. Psalm 61, 1 through 4, also 84, 1 through 8, to pray in his sanctuary. Interestingly, in the very first letter that Paul ever wrote, 1 Thessalonians, Paul would express these same three things, rejoicing, thanksgiving, and prayer, as being the will of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And then Paul says, the Lord is near. In other words, this is something that is significant in real time. This is something that is a present tense reality for you. The Lord is near. Now, I know it sounds very familiar to the apocalyptic language that we oftentimes find in the prophets. For instance, in in Zephaniah, in the first chapter of of Zephaniah, there's a statement there in in chapter 1 and verse 7 and verse 14 where it says that the day of the Lord is near. It's apocalyptic language. It's talking about this second advent that is to come, the coming of of the Christ. Of course, the prophets were looking to the the coming of the Christ child. We as believers today, uh, we look for the return of this one who is the resurrected Christ. And even Paul would co-opt this kind of language in in the book of of Romans, for instance, in chapter 13, in verse 12. Paul would borrow the language of the prophets and say that the day of the Lord is near. James would say the same thing in chapter 5 and verse 12. The day of the Lord is near. It's to a persecuted people saying, listen, I know life is hard. You hang in there. There is a day coming. You persevere. You fight. You fight the good fight. You battle through these present circumstances because the day of the Lord is near. But Paul is saying much more today. 
Paul is stating an indicative statement here. He is making a declarative statement that is no less significant and no less meaningful than the statement that has been previously made, the day of the Lord is near. Paul says the Lord is near right now. It's a kind of realized eschatology, if you will, that we as the people of God, we know that we are a people of the future. We know that the kingdom of God is out there, that God is fashioning all of creation. This work of salvation is the work of the entire created order. But there is a kind of realized eschatology that the kingdom of God is here and now. The Lord is here. The Lord is near. You're suffering right now. Listen, Paul says the Lord is near. To the Philippians then who were persecuted for their faith, Paul writing from a Roman prison, part of the Philippians being part of his prison epistles. Listen, you're suffering. Paul says the Lord is near. Paul has a peace because he knows the Lord is near. Listen, you're grieving. The Lord is near. You're uncertain of the future. The Lord is near. It is a realized eschatology for the here and now. And because of this, everything that's before this, everything that comes after this, everything is rooted and grounded in this reality for believers that the Lord is near. And because he is here, and because he is omnipresent, because he is always near, because of that, he says rejoice in the Lord always. This is your identifying characteristic as a people of God, your capacity to rejoice. And it's an unmitigated joy, not wrapped up, not tied into your present circumstances, but it is a joy that emerges at a re- as a result of this relationship that you have with Christ, the one who is near. And so because of that, if we rightly understand, and if we are at a place in our faith journey like Paul, when we know that the Lord is near, he says, I can rejoice in anything. What Paul is saying, rejoice always. Whatever's going on, rejoice. Whatever's happening, whatever circumstances you're facing, Paul says, rejoice. And joy is the redundant theme of, of the book of Philippians being written by a man under Roman imprisonment. Facing the very real possibility of a death sentence. And yet he is at a place in his relationship with Christ in his understanding of the nearness of the Lord. That without equivocation he says to those he loves, listen, rejoice in, in everything. Paul speaks of it, I mean, even beginning in chapter 1 and in verse 4. Paul expresses joy as he prays for them in chapter 4 and verse 10 he expresses joy over the gift that they have sent to him in chapter 4 and verse 1 he says to the church at Philippi you are my crown and my and my joy 
My joy even in these circumstances. My joy is in you and seeing what God is fashioning and, and accomplishing in, in you. See, Paul always has his arrows going outward. It's not about him. Paul's not living inside his head. Paul is still celebrating and rejoicing. Yeah, I'm in prison, but I still see what God is doing. I see his handiwork. You're my joy. You're my crown. And some 16 times from that bookend, from the first chapter to the fourth chapter, 16 times, Paul uses this word joy that is to characterize our lives. I love the way Karl Barth, Swiss theologian, so aptly states this. And I was sharing it with Patty last night because I think it's such a, it's such a great insight and such a, a great statement. He said, for Christians, joy is a defiant nevertheless in the face of circumstances come as they may come what will whatever this world wants to impose upon me whatever whatever it is that the world brings my way joy listen church joy is our defiant nevertheless we can choose joy and we can rejoice in whatever the circumstances. Because Paul says the Lord is near. Well, secondly, let your gentle spirit, verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. This is the attitude, this is the kind of devotion, out of this devotion that you have to Christ, this devotion and reverence that you have for the one that is near, Toward your oppressors, those who persecute you. Listen, just be gentle. Their day of wrath is coming. You will be vindicated. Until then, you be gentle. You know, when I, when I see Paul writing these words, it makes me think this is just the Pauline version of what, of what Peter said regarding the attitude of, of Christ expressed in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. Peter said, and while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And now Paul ascribes that same attitude to us as, as believers, as, as the same uh, as, as, as slaves to Christ. Just as Jesus believed that the Lord was near, and he responded not in kind to his abusers. Just as Jesus believed with conviction that his Lord, his God, was near, enabling him to face his suffering, the cross, whose faith in the nearness of God was proved out in, in the resurrection, Paul says, let that be, let that be your attitude. Let that be your perspective. The understanding that, that, that there is always more to the story being written than just these present circumstances. Even our Lord, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He knew the cross wasn't going to have the final word. He knew that, that the Father was near. But there was more to this narrative of salvation that remains to be written. And so because the Lord is near, he would say in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. 
Don't worry about anything. That, that's an inclusive statement. Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, Bobby, I hear that, but what about no? Don't be anxious about anything. Yeah, but I've got this situation. No. No matter what your situation is. Do not be anxious, Paul says, about anything. Why? Because the Lord is near. But Bobby, my circumstances are different from no, no, they're not. There's nothing new under the sun. Because the Lord is near, do not be anxious about anything. You see, anxiety and fear, listen, we all deal with this. We're, all, we're not all yet where the Apostle Paul would have us to be. But we have to, we're always trying to grow and get to a different place in our faith journey. And when we deal with fear and anxiety, we have to understand it for what it is. The fear and anxiety that we have expresses unbelief. The fear and anxiety and uncertainties that we have about our circumstances, that's an expression of unbelief. It exposes us. It exposes our, our, our lack of conviction regarding what Paul has said here, that the Lord is near. When we have fear and anxiety and uncertainty, all that we sense as being near is our circumstances. We don't sense and we have no conviction regarding the nearness of the Lord. That's why Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. The Philippians are filled with distress, worry, fear. Paul's saying, listen, you've, you've lost sight of the reality that the Lord is near. And so because the Lord is, is near, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Because the Lord is near, and that's foundational to everything that Paul is saying in this passage, because the Lord is near, prayer and thanksgiving is to be our response to anything. That's the appropriate response to anything. Not fear, not worry, not anxiety. The appropriate response to everything and anything if we're going to have peace. And that's the agenda. That's what Paul is talking about. Then we have to give prayer and thanksgiving to everything. In fact, you know the lack of gratitude. Paul has a very compelling argument back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. Paul sees a lack of gratitude as being the starting place for a life of idolatry, self-worship. A lack of gratitude is the beginning of idolatry, self-worship. In fact, if you, if you read all of Paul's writings, one of the things that, that you come away thinking is, man, Paul is a guy that is truly thankful. There is a real thread of gratitude and appreciation for the workings of God and what God is doing and what God, what God is accomplishing that runs through the entirety of Paul's writings. 
And in Romans 1 especially, we, uh, when Paul writes about the created order and, and the root of all things being the abandonment of our created role, problems start happening and problems started happening with humanity when, when the created tried to supplant the creator. And what thanksgiving is, thanksgiving and prayer is an act of humility. When we are a people that are truly filled with gratitude and appreciation, what we're doing is we are humbly expressing and acknowledging, I'm a creature. I've been created by a creator. And so everything that I have, everything that has been entrusted to me, it is a gift for my creator. And for that, we, we are thankful. And so Paul says in verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's calling you back to what he, I've I've shown you the commands. I've shown you, I've shown you the, the, the imperatives. I've listed for you these three, four commanding imperatives that you be a rejoicing people. This is to characterize your piety, your life of life of devotion, your inner life. From your inner life needs to emerge thanksgiving, prayerfulness, gentleness, and rejoicing. And if you follow those commands, you practice those commands, those imperatives, well, here's what you get. You get peace. These are the things commanded. Peace is the thing promised. If you practice these things. Now these, these are not these are not things that you just casually approach. This has to be the devotion of who you are. Rejoicing, thanksgiving, gentleness, prayer. And as you embrace those and you devote yourself to those, then what is acquired and what is promised is peace. And it's a peace that, that surpasses all comprehension. And it's not just, yes, it, yes it's, a, it's, it's a peace that, that surpasses what uh, the human mind can understand. Our finite mi- minds cannot understand all the things of an infinite God. Yes, it's that in part. But the peace that he is speaking of that is beyond comprehension, more than anything, it is beyond the comprehension of someone who thinks with the human mind only. Because when you practice these things, when this is your piety, when this is the expression of your piety, thanksgiving, prayer, rejoicing, gentleness, listen, it elevates your view. It raises up your eyes, your heart and mind to see beyond just the present tense circumstances. And when these things come to characterize your life as they did Paul, Paul says this piety will bring peace. But not this alone. There's there's another side to this, and that's peace and ethics. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that in the writings of Paul, we're all familiar enough with Paul's writings to understand that there there are ethical implications of being a follower of Christ. 
that when you have been born again, to use the words of Jesus, when you have become a new creation in Christ Jesus, to use the words of Paul, there is this expectation that, that it impacts your thinking, your thinking, your mind is being transformed. And the result of a transformed mind is transformed behavior. We, we live differently, we act differently because we are a people of God. And so as Paul thinks about the ethical implications of the life of faith that we are called to live and exhibit out there in the world, this is what Paul says. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You've got to dwell upon these things. You've got to contemplate these things. Keep these things before you. And it's as you think about these things, as you dwell upon them, as you concentrate on them, these are translated into actions, into, into behavior. These are things that don't just happen. Uh, these are things that require reflection, intentionality, and contemplation. Now, here's what's unique, what Paul has done here. While the other imperatives that we looked at in verses 4 through 7 that were related to our Christian piety, our inner life, those grew out of, those came out of Jewish piety. Those came out of the Old Testament. And Paul more or less just baptized them. He brought them up to speed, so to speak, the implications of them in the life of Christ. But what's unique about what Paul has listed here, the virtues in, verses, in verse 8 that we're to think about, this is nothing new. Paul's not inventing new virtues. This is, Paul's not throwing out some things here that his, with which his audience is unfamiliar. In fact, for uh, we need to understand, Paul, Paul was a man of letters, so to speak. Paul, Paul was versed in Judaism, but Paul was also very well versed in the Greco-Roman world, as was any learned Jew that was a product of the dispersion. I mean, their lives were lived in a, in a Greco-Roman world. What, what Paul is holding forth here are words and virtues that are very familiar to his, uh, this is just Hellenistic moralism. That's all it is. In fact, if you, take a, if you were to remove brothers and sisters, where Paul says brothers and sisters, that makes it kind of uniquely Christian in, in his appeal. But if you just remove brothers and sisters, everything that follows sounds like something you might read in Epictetus' discourses or Seneca's moral essays. But Paul is not holding forth Stoic philosophy. Paul's not holding forth the self-sufficiency of Stoicism. And that's what all these things, these virtues sound like. Paul's saying these things need to emerge from our life because of our Christ sufficiency. Because see, Paul is doing something here that is very intentional, I think very strategic and very missional. All of us live in a world. All of us are, are all of us as believers. Yes, we're we're aliens. We're sojourners. We're just passing through. But our faith, we're called to live our faith out in the world. And there are certain virtues that even the world understood. 
So instead of just abandoning the world, instead of just deeming everything as evil in the world, Paul says, no, there's some things that are out there that are virtuous, qualities that, that are good, characteristics that are to be embraced. Now understand, Paul's thinking is, is that morality is not a man-made construct. Paul believes all these things that have been adapted by Hellenistic literature, Greek literature, the Greco-Roman literature of, of, that, of that earlier day and time preceding Paul, Paul would see them as having hijacked what belonged to God. He would say morality and virtue is not a man-made construct. That's an argument of the Enlightenment. Nietzsche thinks that morality was a man-made construct. Paul's argument is that virtue and morality actually emerges from the heart and the mind of God. C.S. Lewis, if you're interested in this type topic, C.S. Lewis writes a great deal about this in his book, The Abolition of Men. That morality and virtue is not a man-made construct. It emerges from the heart and the mind of God. So Paul is saying there is at least some minimum standards out there, these ideals of how people are supposed to behave. And as the followers of Christ, let the world see in you at least the minimum of what the world's expecting. It's not unlike Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 12. You remember the story in Genesis 12 where Abraham told his wife Sarah, who was very beautiful, told Sarah, said, hey, listen, they're going to kill me, so why don't you just pretend it, they're going to try to kill me because of your beauty. They're going to kill me and they're going to take you. So why don't you just pretend to be my sister? And not my wife. I mean, how sick is that? Why don't you pretend to be my sister and not my wife? Now, the kicker of that story is, and I think it applies to what we have here in this situation, is Pharaoh was disgusted. Pharaoh was disgusted by that. He couldn't believe that a man of God would do such a wicked thing, have your wife pretend to be your sister, that your own life might be spared. Even a pagan like Pharaoh had a certain expectation of how the people of God should live. That's what Paul is holding forth here in this passage. At minimum, let them see us living virtuous Lives, those things that are good and right and holy, those are the basic things that need to be evident in us. And as for the things you have learned, he says in verse 9, as for the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Practice, he says, put into practice what you have learned, received, seen, and heard from me by example. Now Paul's assumption is, is that you're a student. That you desire to learn the people that he's writing. He assumes that they, are, that they have a student's mentality. That they have a desire to learn and to know more for the purpose of application in their life. Again, knowledge is never for knowledge's sake. And one of the things that needs to mark us as a people of God is a hunger as a student to learn and to know. And in matters of theology, it is an inexhaustible quest. Oftentimes say to college students, oftentimes say to, to young adults, 
uh, really to un- anyone who presumes to know more than they really do. At this stage in life, you need to have far more questions than you're presuming to know answers, especially in matters of faith. You need to have far more questions than you're presuming to know answers. And I realized a long time ago that as the island, that as the island of my knowledge grows, so does the shoreline of my ignorance. As the island of my knowledge grows, so does the shoreline of my ignorance. We need to hunger to be life students, to be learners, not for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of what is offered when we apply and practice these things. And Paul's assurance to the church at Philippi, and no less is his assurance to us as a people of God today, By embracing and practicing this kind of piety, this kind of devotional life, by practicing these kind of of ethics, this way of thinking and believing, then the God of peace, the God of peace, The one who came, the one who suffered, the one who died, the one who was resurrected to be the Prince of Peace, he will give you peace as well. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the the imperatives that are set before us, that these are not not one-off things to be practiced once and walked away from in frustration. That our spirit of rejoicing and and thanksgiving and prayerfulness and gentleness is to be the devotion of who we are if we are to know your peace. That we must dwell upon all things virtuous, all things good. And that we must seek to see them played out in our lives, in our attitudes, in our behavior if we are to have the peace that you would desire for us. That it would be a peace that emerges not from the favorable circumstances of life, but a a peace that emerges because of your nearness and more especially because of our kinship with you. So as we desire peace, my prayer, Lord, is that we might leave here today as a peaceable and gracious people In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And as we stand this morning for our dismissal, we'll be offered this blessing from the Apostle Paul, from the pen of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 and 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. You're dismissed. See you tonight.